Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Also on the web at KUCI.org. We had a little extra music there from one of my favorite CDs. Brian Jones presents the Pipes of Pan at Jajuka. So this is our March 5th, 2009 edition of the show. I'm Robert Larson. It's 5.08 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get into things, I have a couple of quick reminders for you, as always. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. Or uh, you can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash outtherabbithole. In the course of doing a few shows with author Anthony Peake to discuss his ideas and theories about consciousness, reality, what happens when we die, etc., we have been connected to his online community where his cheating the ferryman is their life after death theories are thoroughly discussed. One of the most fascinating contributors to these uh, discussions is quantum theorist Carl Lemarks. His uh, most important contribution is what he calls collapsing the consciousness wave. He is our special guest today, and we'll get into all that and more with him momentarily. Carl Lemarks, have we got you hooked up here? So far, so good. All right. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Robert. Well, nice to talk to you. Yes, yes. You are also over there in the UK, right? Yes, I'm over here in the UK, in the wee small hours of the morning. <laughs> what, it's uh, 1 a.m. there? Is that what it is? Or 2 a.m.? It is, yes. But as a fellow insomniac, these times don't mean anything to us, do they? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is this is like morning time for me right now, 5 p.m. <laughs> is about... I've been up for like a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, really great having you here. Uh, why don't you first tell us a little about your background and how you came to be connected to the ideas of Anthony Peake? Well, um, my background is, is very varied. Um, I came across Tony's work. Um, I, I have... I had a number of years ago quite a severe bipolar depression um, diagnosis. Um, it's now manageable, but the bipolarity that I had manifested itself pretty much entirely cerebrally, by which I mean a normal manic side of the bipolar depression for people is that there's a massive physical energy, but there's a feeling that they have to expend this energy and do something and run around. With me, it was all cerebral and brain activity. Um, I could go four or five days without sleep. I would read maybe six books a day from cover to cover, and I would write thousands and thousands of words. Um, and I was coming out of a quite a severe depressive slump, um, and uh, I used to do some radio work on biorhythms and body language, which is another aspect of what I do. And a friend of mine who um, I'd done some radio work with in the UK um, contacted me to say, Carl, I need your help. Um, I've been given this book to read, and to be honest, I can't really understand it. Can you help me? Um, and it was Tony's book. That so, was his um, first book, the uh, Is There Life the, After Death? Is There Life After Death, yes. Yeah. What we uh, affectionately term ITLAD because of the uh, acronym. Yes. But um, <clears throat> she gave me the book, and I, I read it um, in a couple of days, and then, as is my want, I, I tend to read books twice, so I, I read it again. And I, I wrote down quite a few, a number of questions that I had on the theory and quite a, a few things that I, I, w I wanted to speak to the author about. And um, my friend Carol, who hosted the radio show, had on her lap a crib sheet that I'd written for her of questions when she interviewed Tony in the studio. And uh, it's nice that Tony can still remember when he was interviewed by Carol, that he, he questioned why she kept looking down at her lap when she was talking to him. <laughs> and it was because she had the, these questions that I'd pre-prepared for her. 
and during the interview, Carol kept saying to Tony, oh, there's a friend of mine, Carl, who you must meet. He talks about this sort of thing regularly. He's, he's spoken about his ideas in, in this area. Um, and then Tony and I started emailing. I went along to one of his talks. Um, and then we, we met up a few times later and, and have since become very good friends. And we're now pushing his theory because of some some aspects within the theory of problems that are identified. We've now resolved those problems by expanding the theory. And this is the whole purpose of his blog and his forum, that like-minded people across the world now come together and put their ideas forward. And it's a very much a dialectical process and very much a scientific method on there in that someone, can, someone proposes an alternative, an antithesis to the thesis, we look at it, we combine it, we either eradicate it or we incorporate it into the new theory. From that then comes the synthesis, which becomes the new thesis. So it's, a, it's an evolving dynamic theory that is always expanding and always growing. And from there has developed my CTTW, my collapsing the consciousness wave theory, which solves a lot of the problems that people had with ITLAD initially. And the, and the beauty of it is that Tony's theory of ITLAD stands on its own, and my theory of collapsing the consciousness wave stands on its own. But when you put them together, it's a very powerful thing. Yes, and so you mentioned the forum. Uh, let's give that out right now. What's the web address people can go if they want to get involved in that forum or just read? Yeah, it's um, www.anthonypeak.co.uk slash forum. And Anthony Peak is Anthony with a H and Peak with an E at the end. But um, if you either go straight to anthonypeak.co forward slash forum or even just go to anthonypeak.com, there will be a link there to Tony's forum. Um, and on the forum, the, the, there are different sections on quantum physics, neurology, deja vu, recognition, consciousness studies, different aspects that the book and CTCW cover that people can come in and if they express an interest, because we have people on there who are precognitive dreamers, we have people on there who deja regularly, deja vu, deja becu, deja visite. Um, we have people on there who are interested in the concepts of time perception. Uh, we have philosophers on there, uh, neurologists, psychologists. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating group of people. And um, in, in esoteric philosophy, there is what's called an egregore, which is this combined thought form that grows when a group, a like-minded number of people come together. Um, and th th there is very much a strong egregore growing on this forum, which is where we're going with these theories and why Tony and I want now to push forward um, from it, lad, through, through Tony's cheating the fireman thesis, into my CTCW, and then ultimately towards our combined theory of everything. Yes, yes. Okay, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, uh, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson speaking today with Carl Lamarck. He is a quantum theorist and has some amazing ideas about consciousness, reality, life, death, birth, and all of this related to some of the ideas we've talked about with uh, uh, Anthony Peake on the show in uh, past episodes. So you've mentioned a couple of times now the... Uh, Collapsing the consciousness wave, or you uh, yeah. have the abbreviation CTCW. Uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so what is collapsing the consciousness wave? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Herein lies the problem, Robert. Um, Tony's book is 400 and odd pages long um, and could have been about twice as long. I mean, Tony is. is, is been very kind enough to give me a copy of the unexpurgated version, the unedited hard science version of his book, and it is brilliant, but it could well have been eight or nine hundred pages. <laughs> okay. Now, collapsing the consciousness wave inc incorporates everything that ITLAD covers, but much more. So, uh, as, as a standalone book, um, my problem is that I've written thousands and thousands and thousands of words, and it, it, it at the moment is just a massive piece of work. So to try and <laughs> encapsulate it, okay. Um, the 
two main areas of quantum physics, the two main interpretations of quantum physics are Niels Bohr's Copenhagen interpretation, which states that reality is brought about by perception, that uh, until something is perceived, primarily an atom, until something is perceived, it doesn't exist as a particle, it exists as a wave of energy and potential. When it is perceived and observed by a consciousness, it becomes real, it becomes a particle, it becomes local. Now that is the basic tenets of the Copenhagen interpretation. You also have Hugh Everett III, who um, brought forward the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, which states that yes, the observation does create one particle of the wave, but that there are trillions of alternate parallel universes where every single one of those possible outcomes lives out its, its rule. Now, perhaps in the consciousness wave, fundamentally, it asserts that consciousness itself is a waveform, that consciousness is unified, it's a unified field that unifies everyone and everything. The strapline that I have to collapsing the consciousness wave that I think most people seem to identify with is that I say we are all one consciousness, but we are experiencing itself subjectively as collapsed particles of consciousness from the objective consciousness wave, which to put as simply as I can, if consciousness is a wave, human consciousness now has developed to the point where through evolution and biology, humans' brains became sentient. As soon as it became sentient, we collapse the wave of consciousness and create a particle of consciousness that is us. It's our thoughts, our memory, our feelings, our urges, everything about what we seem to think is us becomes that small particle of consciousness that we've collapsed. An analogy that I use is what I call the bucket and sea analogy, or the pail and sea, probably, in the, in the USA. Because um, if you go to the sea edge with an empty bucket or an empty pail, and you put your pail or bucket through the sea, and you have now a pail of water in your hand, yeah? Yes. Is the water that is in your pail, the sea. <laughs> it, it is and it isn't. Exactly. <laughs> you can't say, I've got the sea in my pail here. But it was once part of the sea. And it has memories of being part of the sea. And within it are trillions and trillions of atoms that used to be in the sea. Now, you can walk around with that pail for the rest of your life. That is your pail that goes with you everywhere to, for you to use as you wish. But you can always go back to the seafront and you can always tip your pail back into the sea. And once you've done that, you cannot stand by the seafront and point to any part of the sea and say, that used to be in my pail. Mm, okay. Now, yeah. To me, consciousness is very similar, but consciousness is the sea. And the bucket or the pail is, is us, our brain. But we go to the sea and the brain collapses this part and takes this little bit of consciousness field away with us that is ours then to use. We use it, we, we store our memories, our thoughts, our feelings, our loves, our desires, our regrets. Everything about our life is stored in that pail. And then at the end of our life, that is tipped back into the sea. Now, when we have the bucket of water, uh, mm -hmm. when we are the consciousness that is just in the bucket, yeah. do we still have access to the larger sea? Is there a vibration of it somehow? Yeah. It's, it's basically, um, if, you look, if, 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 you, if you're aware of the concept of the Akashic field, um, or even of vacuum point energy, zero-point energy field of, of, of modern quantum physics simply says that everything has um, a transcendental connection. Everything is connected to each other. You have what David Bohm, the quantum physicist, called information. Like informs like. 
that in the bucket and sea analogy, you have this bucket of water that has memories of being part of the sea. It remembers being part of the sea, it remembers the molecules that, were, that it was next to. In quantum physics as well, there's, there's the um, Einstein, Podolsky and Rosen paradox called the EPR paradox, where two atoms that were created together are separated and taken across the world. Now, each atom has what's called spin. It doesn't actually spin, but it's called spin. It's like a direction of energy. So you have two atoms that were together, so they would have corresponding spin. One would have left spin, one would have right spin, because they cancel each other out. Now, it's been proven time and time again and shown to be true that you can take these two particles across the world, and then one particle that you know is spinning clockwise, you put it in the machinery that changes the spin so that it changes it to anti-clockwise. Immediately, its, its partner atom changes direction. Immediately. This can be done across the world and it's five times faster than the speed of light. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. And Einstein proposed the EPR paradox to actually dispel the idea of this what's called non-locality. But experimentation has shown that it is actually true. So now, that one, atoms, uh, go ahead. I'm just saying if atoms at the very base level have this instinctive knowledge of each other, then the very fact that we are made of atoms, that everything we know is made of atoms, it becomes quite sensible to suggest that there is this strong connection between everything in the world, and that includes consciousness. Because consciousness ultimately is the one thing that binds everyone together. And um, the work with, with Tony and, and um, his theory of cheating the fireman, if you incorporate that into collapsing the consciousness wave, then you have a, a very beautiful structure of life that you are born, you attain sentience, you collapse this consciousness wave and create your particle of consciousness. You then live your life, what we call the virgin life. You live your life in the reality. At the point of your death, this is where Tony's theory comes into play, and I'll just re recap Tony's theory quickly. But Tony asserts that at the point of your death, you do not die. You fall into what he calls the Bohmian IMAX, again in, re in deference to David Bohm, the quantum physicist. And the Bohmian IMAX simply states that at the point of your death, you do not die in your timeline. To anyone perceiving you and looking at you, you die. But in your time, you don't, because you fall out of time because of the glutamate flood, which is a neurological um, chemical within the brain that is proven to slow down time. So I won't go too much into Tony's theory, but Tony says that then you enter this Bowman IMAX and you, you relive your life countless times with the possibility of changing something within your life. But all this is lived in a holographic three-dimensional reproduction of everything. It's all in um, an idealistic realm. It's all in, in, in the mental side. It's not in a reality. One of the main areas that Tony and I disagreed with when I first read the book was that Tony asserted that the Bowman IMAX achieved what Nietzsche called the eternal return, that these returns were for eternity. Now, I think I've managed to persuade Tony to reconsider that when looking at quite strong Cantorian mathematics and quantum physics. You can suggest that there is what, what I term quanta of time, an amount of time that can no longer be subdivided. So I assert that you go through these trillions of recurrences in your life where you live out every possible outcome of what you could have achieved with the potential you were born with until you come to a point where there is no more time left to play another repeat. And that is what I term the ultimate life. And that is, in effect, your best bits. Your daemon, as Tony calls it, which is the part of you that is aware that you've lived your life before, actually plays out for you the best life that you could possibly have ever lived. The best life that you could have, the best decisions you could have chosen, the best outcomes, the best life you could have lived with the potential you were born with. And then I assert that at the end of your ultimate life, 
yes, you do actually no longer have sentience. So you are no longer observing your own particle of consciousness. So I assert you go back onto the consciousness wave. All your memories, all your thoughts, everything that you have lived in these trillions of lives, you sort of release your buckets back into the sea. And right, then, yeah. Down the corridor, just where, in the hospital where you died, down the corridor, a newborn baby is born. They collapse their consciousness wave. So they take their bucket out of the sea. But that sea now contains your bucket. That sea now contains everything that you have lived. So within that baby down this corridor, there is one atom of you and of your memories and of your lives. And because of that, I can then explain things like reincarnation. I can explain things like past life regressions. I can explain why certain people are fascinated with historical figures. Um, whereas within pure Tony's theory, these things can't be explained. But now we can. So you could uh, have memories of say, a famous figure, uh, Napoleon, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that was a previous incarnation of you. It's yeah. just that you tapped into that area of the ocean that you just arose out of, the, where your uh, consciousness wave collapsed out of that large sea where you might have been floating around where that energy of that previous character was? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's very well, very astutely picked up, Robert. Fantastic, yes. That's exactly what I mean, that it isn't that you lived your life as Napoleon. It's just that in your collapse, in your bucket, if you like, there might be two atoms of Napoleon, where there was only one of, of, uh, of Bodicea, uh, or there was only one of Abraham Lincoln, but there was two of Napoleon. So all of a sudden, you, you feel an affinity to anything Napoleonic. If you go through past life regressions, you might, you might talk about Napoleon. It doesn't mean that you lived as Napoleon. It just means that in your collapse, you've got more memories of Napoleon than you had of Abraham Lincoln. Right. So why is it that the consciousness uh, uh, wave collapses? Why is it that the... Uh, whatever sees fit to take a bucket out of the ocean uh, every so often. Yeah, well, this, this goes really down to evolution. Um, you know, going right back through Darwin, Darwinian evolution, the, stage, the stages of man from, if you believe the theory of, of coming out of the sea and walking on two legs and, and forming two, there was a point where the brain was, was evolving as well as the biology. Uh, and I don't think, it's indisputable, I think, that the human brain on Earth, certainly, is the, the most developed brain. But if you look at species of all animals, there are different degrees of brain development. Um, and even if you look back just a couple of hundred years, you can see that in certain species, brain development has increased more rapidly than others. So I don't think it's, it's any different with humans. I think there was a time when humans weren't what we would classify as conscious. Humans just had what, what, what's called proto-consciousness, which is a low level of consciousness, but not strong enough to actually develop and become and ask the questions that modern man asks now. So evolution meant that the brain developed and the brain expanded and the brain developed these concepts of being able to collapse this consciousness wave more effectively. Because consciousness wave has always been there uh, and it has always sort of driven the evolution. Because even if you look at something like plant life, plants instinctively know which direction to grow into. Plants will always grow towards the sun. Now, you can't say that a plant is necessarily conscious, but a plant seems to have this in this knowledge inside it, this information, that when it puts its little shoots up through the soil, it knows where the sun is and goes in that direction. Um, so I'd, human consciousness was the same. We had proto-consciousness, we had this functionality, but we weren't really conscious. And we got to the degree where our brains had developed enough to awaken full sentience. And sentience is the driver that creates consciousness. So when we then became conscious, we collapsed the, the consciousness wave for the first time, if you like. Mm -hmm. 
but within there we have all the memories of everything. There is an argument um, that the consciousness wave or, or the Akashic records of, uh, of history and esoteric law, that the Akashic records contain the memories of everything that has ever happened, but also potentially everything that will ever happen. So then, I, I want to make sure I have this clear, though. Is So when a... A new life is formed, a baby is born, when that brain forms, it's just sort of an automatic process that that yeah. uh, consciousness wave collapses, that, that's just part yeah. of a human brain developing? Yeah, it's very, it's very similar to like, you know, um, radios and radio waves, seeing as we're on the radio, we can talk about that. <laughs> but, um, the radio waves are out there permanently, but the, the radios themselves have to be tuned in. And the radios turn on, and you have a radio station. A classic analogy that I, I've written about um, CTCW is what I termed, where is the Internet? Yes. Because I think that's a question that I've asked many people. You know, everyone uses the Internet. Everyone knows what it is. But where is it? Where is the Internet? Now, if you think of the Internet as a wave that... All around you are, are these Wi-Fi hotspots. All around you, everyone's carrying laptops that have this ability to tap into the Internet without any wires out. Now, if you think of the Internet as consciousness, and then you think of a laptop computer as our brain, a laptop can collapse the wave of the Internet and create on it its own little particle of the Internet. On your computer, you can then store your favorite websites. It can store a history of where you've been. It can store your favorites. It can store your history and store, you know, the places you like to visit. That is your memory. That is you using the Internet in your own little laptop, your own little particle of the Internet. So that's an analogy I use to try and explain to people what I mean. Yeah, I think that's very useful. Consciousness. Yeah, that is, I, I enjoyed reading that. That's very useful, yeah. the, the Internet, because people understand the Internet, and they, they use the term the Internet like it's something that you can put your finger on. It's, it's yeah. in one place, which is not the case. And, it, mm -hmm. and this is, right, consciousness is the same type of thing. We each have our yeah. own bits of consciousness, but there's consciousness that is just uh, permeates the universe. And mm -hmm. uh, we, where really is it? Yeah, so, okay, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Carl Lemarks, and he is a quantum theorist, and we're discussing all of his fascinating ideas about reality and consciousness and uh, what is real in uh, his collapsing the consciousness wave theory that he talks about quite frequently on uh, Anthony Peake's forum, and uh, you can go to anthonypeake.com and uh, find the links to the forum there, and uh, you can actually uh, get involved with this if you would like to join the discussion online. So let's talk about the, uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, the big toe, what is that, the, the Bohmian IMAX grand theory of everything? <laughs> yeah, Tony's theory um, is that uh, we live these recurrences of our lives in what he terms the Bohmian IMAX after David Bohm. So uh, we've um, come together and semi-humorously invented the big toe, which stands for the Bohmian IMAX grand theory of everything. Um, because as I said, Tony's ITLAD theory stands perfectly well on its own, and my CTCW stands on its own. But when you put the two together, um, the weaknesses that I found in Tony's theory can be answered, and the weaknesses that are, I think are in my theory can be answered. Um, so the two together are a very strong thing, and this is the, the big toe, this is the next step of, of our work, really, in that um, Tony's now done his second book on the daemon. Um, I, I'm not sure whether I want to publish CTCW as a standalone book or whether I want to take it into the academic sector, you know, and try and, try and fuse philosophy with um, spirituality and with quantum physics um, and be somewhere in the middle because there's a lot of philosophy within CTCW. Um, the classic ex best example I can give is that the German philosopher Immanuel Kant stated that everything that we see 
isn't real because it's what he, he calls living in the phenomenal world. That the only thing that is real is what he called the noumena, which is unknowable to us. Now, if you put that into Tony's theory, then yes, what Kant called the phenomenal world is just Tony's bomb and IMAX. And what Kant called the noumena, this reality that all the rest is predicated on, is what we may term the virgin life, which is the real actual life within the reality. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to fuse philosophy with quantum physics and bring the two together, because I know that in America, more than anywhere else, there's a huge schism between philosophy and spirituality and, and, and hard science, mm -hmm. and probably more so than anywhere else in the world. But I don't see that the, the, that the three have to be mutually exclusive. I think the three can be fused. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, uh, Terence McKenna used to talk about how we mostly walk around with these notions about consciousness that are really just provincial, provisional, chauvinistic assumptions, and that this becomes clear with the psychedelic experience. However, most of the scientific community considers this evidence inadmissible. W what are your thoughts on that? I think it, I think it's I think it's quite damaging and quite blinkered of people to say that something is inadmissible. Um, classic. Um, if, well, if you look at if you look at two avenues of of debate that are essentially the same thing, philosophy has what's called the dialectic, which is um, Hegelian. George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel came up with the, the dialectic, which says that you have a thesis, you then have an antithesis, which is the argument against it, and then the two come together and you either lose one or you incorporate the other and you end up with a synthesis, which is the new thesis and the process continues. Now that's philosophy. Within science you have what's called the scientific method, which is that a theory comes out and what you, in science, science is the only realm where you come up with a theory and you, everyone looks for reasons to disprove it. In any other realm, you come up with a theory and people look for, th for things to agree with it. But in science, you come up with a theory and people look for things to disprove it. Yes. But it's only by disproving it that you can move on. Because there are no failed experiments in science. If you try an experiment and you don't get the result you expected, it's not a failed experiment. You can just say, okay, well, it doesn't do that then. Um, so it's all a process of expansion. So there's no difference to me in the dialectic of philosophy with the scientific method of science. So I think it's quite blinkered for philosophers to completely rule out science and spirituality, but it's also quite blinkered for anyone within spirituality and science to completely rule out philosophy. Hopping um, back hundreds of years, science was known as natural philosophy. Um, when Newton was writing his, his tractate, the, it was called natural philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's only in, in probably a couple, of, a few hundred, a hundred years or so that they, it's actually diverged and split. They, they come from the same trunk. So I think we need to be. If, if you, if you, the realm of of, um, of theory and research now called consciousness studies but he's now beginning to fuse a lot of these old beliefs and a lot of these old things and a lot of, a lot of old methods. And I think it's definitely the way forward, that we, we can't answer things on pure science, neither can we answer things on pure philosophy. We have to sort of borrow the strong points and the qualities from each, yeah. and we need to sort of fuse everything together to progress, because if we don't, we end up with a theory that says, well, this, this, this works as long as you don't look at science. This works. Yeah. Well, it doesn't work then. It has to. It has to be able to be scrutinised by all avenues. Well, and that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. But specifically about some of these uh, psychedelic compounds that McKenna was talking about, such as psilocybin and mescaline and LSD, yeah. that, that, that we have these assumptions about consciousness. But when you use these compounds, you you sort of are able to get out of those assumptions. Do you feel that have 
well, I don't know, personally or otherwise, that, that there have been good advancements made through the use of those compounds in understanding consciousness? I don't think it actually needs artificial stimulants. I think as long as you have the capability to alter your state of consciousness, which can be through um, drugs, it can be through meditation, it can be through concentration, it can be through something like rhythmic, rhythmic dance can even put people into certain trance. Basic um, hypnosis is just an altered state of consciousness. It's just a lowered sentience. Um, and that allows you to actually not be quite as constrained within your particle of consciousness. It allows you to tap into the consciousness field. This is why you get people with this sort of strange connection, this sort of strange feeling of, oh, that per I need to ring that person, and then that person rings. There is this connection on the consciousness field. Uh, one of the classic posts that I wrote on, on forum is what, what I call the sensation of being stared at. Because mm -hmm. I think everyone has this experience that they've either been looking at someone who has then turned around and immediately looked straight at them, or they've been thinking they've just turned around themselves for no reason and have seen someone staring at them. Now, Rupert Sheldrake initially wrote the sense of being stared at because he asserted that it, he felt that it was a sense. And I'd never felt it was a sense. It's certainly a sensation, but I don't think it's a sense. I think it's a sensation. And I think this sensation comes from this connection that we all have on the consciousness field, that we are genuinely just all one consciousness, but we experience consciousness subjectively. So yeah. we think we, we we think we have our own private consciousness. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. It's what actually mean what it, what does it mean to have the colour red or the smell of daffodils or the touch of silk? Is your red the same as my red? Mm -hmm. When you smell daffodils, do you smell the same thing that I do? And it, it's not always easy to uh, be able to answer that question when we are no. each trapped in our own uh, little particle of consciousness. Uh, I'm an occasional lucid dreamer. What are your Ooh. thoughts on this altered state of consciousness wherein one becomes starkly and delightfully aware that the reality one yeah. finds him or herself in is self-created, is being created by the consciousness perceiving it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Totally agree, because I've lucidly dreamt for years. Uh, I've lucidly dreamt for probably over 15 years now. Um, and one of, one, of the, one of the early posts that I wrote for Tony was um, a post called Last Night I Dreamt I Went to Mandalay Again, <laughs> which is the opening line from Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca. Because um, about 15 years ago, I, I started lucidly dreaming. And one of my favorite places in the world is a, is a, is a town called Camden in North London. So um, whenever I began to lucidly dream, I just immediately got on the train and went to Camden. Mm -hmm. I, I adore the place. And there I met a girl, a girl who was called Rachel, because I met her at a store in Camden Market that was called Mandalay. And I met this girl called Rachel. And for 15 years, I've been able to lucidly dream and go and speak to Rachel. And Rachel has directed me to places in Camden that I had not been to. She, I was talking to her in the dream, and I said, oh, yeah, and, you know, I like this pub and I like that pub. And she'd say, well, have you been down to, to this bar? And I said, no, I don't know where that is. And she said, well, if you go around the back of there, and, and that's such a street, turn left there, it's there. So then the next time I physically was in Camden, I, I followed the route that Rachel told me to go. And lo and behold, there was the exact bar that she told me to go to. <laughs> now, I'd never been down that area of Camden. Uh, I'd never read about the pub. I'd never had any experience of, of anyone that had been there. So that information came to me in a lucid dream. Now, Tony and I now have a term for this. We call this the Mandalay Effect. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the dream or it's the recognition of meeting someone who will become important to you in your life. Uh, I've, I've wrestled for years with the concept of, is Rachel a real person? 
is Rachel someone who I have to meet in reality? Or is she just like a, a Jungian manifestation of my anima, my feminine side? Is she just my feminine side talking to me in my dream? Is it just my psyche projecting Rachel? But whatever the explanation is, it still doesn't explain how this information of these places in Camden came to me in the dream. Well, now, is it possible? of my experience. Is it possible that this Rachel in your dream is what Tony would call the daemon? Yes, quite possibly. Um, I, I, I would assert I would it quite possibly is. It could be that in a state of lucid dreaming that you have a lowered sentience. So whilst you are still a particle of consciousness, you are more in tune with the consciousness wave. You are more capable of picking up signals from outside of your own particle, from other particles of consciousness. You're, you're, you're more, more in tune of, of being able to learn something from outside of what you perceive as to be just you. Well, when I, when I lucid dream, it, it's a funny experience. It, it's like this dance because when it becomes clear to me that I am dreaming that okay this reality that I am in right now is something I just dreamed into existence so then I have this sense of of power of this like godlike power okay, this is a reality that I created with my yeah. mind and I can make it be whatever I want it to be but but I start doing this dance because I say, oh, I want to do this or this. I want to create this reality, this fantasy. I want to go here. I want to meet this person. And then I get very excited about it and then sometimes forget that I'm aware in this dream. Or I actually consciously choose to not have total control because it yeah. actually gets kind of boring because yeah, if you are this godlike character and everybody is just a robotic creature who bends to your will where where's the mm -hmm. where's the adventure in that if if you so it, it's it's strange wanting to maintain the power but also to have randomness there yeah. so that it creates this variety and i'm wondering you know does that is that part of collapsing the consciousness wave is it a model of that of that when you are the aware person in the lucid dream, you are sort of like connected to big consciousness, the ocean, if you will, and then you, you create the little dream, and, well, you momentarily lose that connection to big consciousness, but then you yeah. get it back for a little bit, and it's a game. It's a dance. Absolutely. Um, absolutely a part of CTCW with Asia Shadow of a Doubt, yes. Um, I think, I think you, you've, you've hit the nail very much on the head there. Um, I think it's unquestionably a part of it because it, our most regular altered state of consciousness is sleep. Everyone, well, I say everyone, this is you and I and Somniacs talking, but most people, <laughs> most people sleep on a regular basis. Um, and when they sleep, they are in, in a much lower state of consciousness because time perception in sleep just goes, it just disappears. You know, you can spend eight hours at work and you can spend eight hours a bed of sleep. Which one goes faster? Um, the example of the alarm clock as well, you know, you, the alarm clock goes off in the morning, you turn over, you press snooze, you go back to sleep. You can have a whole dream in, in, the, in the eight or nine minutes that you, your alarm clock is, is on snooze. You can have a whole dream. That you, be, you, can, you can be out for hours and then your alarm clock goes back and you come back again. So time perception within the dream, as an example, it just disappears. And this is all altered states of consciousness, because time really has no meaning outside of consciousness, outside of observed consciousness, because time is only an illusion to, to human consciousness. It has no meaning away from us. So dreaming is the most regular lowered state of consciousness that everyone will have. But the yogis, the, Medi the Vedics, the, the, the um, Hindu traditions all show that the meditation as well can alter the state of consciousness. The shamanic traditions show this as well. There are many, many ways that you can alter your state of consciousness. And on this altered state of consciousness, your sentience lowers and you become more in tune with the consciousness wave and the consciousness field. And you can become more in tune to alter things and, 
there's um, two fantastic writers called Ramtha, who's uh, a manifestation of a, of, a, of a person called J.K. Knight, and also Dr. Joe Dispenza, that write a lot about creating your day, creating your own reality. They were both featured in the film What the Bleak Do We Know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've written extensively on how to create your reality within these altered states of consciousness. Um, it's very basic Jungian collective unconscious mind. It's very basic psychology, but the psychology mixed with the factual quantum physics and mixed with consciousness studies show that these things are very powerful. And if that's the case, then we are proving time and time and time again that our reality is from our perception. Because what you perceive is based primarily on what you know or what you believe. Um, the example I would give there is that if there was a car crash in the middle of the street, a deeply religious person would be going, oh God, why could you let this happen? Whereas a scientist would be going, well, the odds on that happening are, are, are 17 to 1 because of the lights and the company. So a scientist would see it in a very different way to a theological person. But that is based primarily on what you believe and what you know. So if you change what you know or what you believe, then you can change what you perceive. Yes, and I think w- one of the most fascinating things is, is this issue of time and that we mm. are so wedded to this notion uh, of linear time and once we can unbuckle from that whether it be through a a dream or an altered state and and, uh, uh, amazing magical things happen and uh, such as uh, Tony's uh, cheating the ferryman where you you fall outside of linear time and It's, uh, you mentioned the dream, ha- having a dream that lasts a couple minutes, but it would seem like it's hours or days. And I even had a, a fellow on the show, uh, Robert Peterson, who talked about, uh, he was talking about out-of-body states and uh, near-death experience and that type of thing. Yeah. And how that, he mentioned an experience from his childhood where he was wrestling around with some friends, and one of the friends sort of like... Uh, caused him to lose consciousness uh, and, uh, for just a moment. And he said in that moment, this lasted seconds, that he had a dreamlike experience that felt like he lived an entire other lifetime. And, uh, you know, that's a mind-blowing notion. It is. I mean, there's a a very dear friend of mine called Aidan who's quite a severe schizophrenic. Um, And he um, doesn't go out. But over the last few months, he he decided to go out a few times, and uh, he went out with some people he knew from um, a mental health forum, and rather rather stupidly decided to take what's known as Special K, which is a a, a drug uh, of of choice these days, which is actually ketamine. Yes. Now, um, someone like Aidan, who was on such very, very strong schizophrenia tablets, and then he took ketamine as well, he says that he was in the club, and he was dancing, and uh, all of a sudden, he left the club. He went home, he slept, he woke up the next day, went to see his mother, went to see his psychiatrist. The next day, I went to see him, he had a full chat with me, he went playing badminton as he used to do, as he likes to do, sorry. He went back to his GP, he went to the mental health form, and he says he lived two weeks of his life. And then all of a sudden, snap, he was back on the dance floor dancing again. Wow, yeah, those those types of experiences are absolutely astonishing and I think completely have bearing on your collapsing the consciousness wave. Yeah, because I, 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 don't, I don't think the two weeks that Aiden lived when he was out for those few seconds in the club, I don't think they were a fabrication. I think they had reality. I think they were all potential things that, that could have happened in Aiden's life, but they existed in different potential around his particle. So because he was in an altered state of consciousness, he could actually live these things in a reality and then drop back into his, into his original linear timeline. And this is what I assert things like dreams are. Dreams are primarily psyche-driven, but they also have an essence of reality about them. So this is what can explain precognitive dreaming. You're not actually having a precognitive dream about something that's in your current timeline, you're tapping into a potential of something else 
experiencing that, and then when it happens in your timeline, you go, oh, that's weird, I had the precarity dream. That can explain things like Deja, Deja Vecchio as well. It isn't that you're actually living it again within the timeline, maybe. It's just that you've tapped into a different potential, experienced it in a dream or within an altered state of consciousness, and then when it repeats in, in the timeline that you're in now, you think, this is a bit strange, this is weird, I've done this before. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have it in that timeline. Yeah, so we're we're just about out of time here, Carl. So if I could just ask you a question that you could maybe just answer yes or no, yeah. and then we could leave it possibly for another show. <laughs> and that is like when we are particles, you know, of a collapsed consciousness wave. Yeah. Is it possible that we, as those particles, have a, a wave collapses even from that into a smaller particle, a smaller reality? depend what the in order to collapse a particle it has to be a waveform so if, if you if you've collapsed a particle already from a waveform it would have to exist in another waveform to be collapsed again um, so I, I, unless something like the luminiferous ether exists then potentially no because um, once something has been collapsed it, it is the particle which is no longer a waveform to be collapsed again okay okay I will have to uh, think that over and uh, maybe formulate it well, in a different do. type of and question. If anybody, if anybody wants to contact me directly with questions, they can write to me at um, darkphilosopher at aol.com or they can always get in touch and involved with Tony's forum and blog and we'll talk and, and we'll expand things there. And I hope to come back another time and even bring Tony with us to talk about the big toe. Okay, that would be great. And uh, so, yeah, your uh, email address again? Is a dark philosopher, which is a dark philosopher at AOL.com. Or if you just go on to Tony's forum, you will see that Carl Lamarck and a dark philosopher post on there regularly, so you can speak to me on there or you can email me directly through there. Okay, and that's Carl Lamarck's K A R L L E M A R C S. It is, yes. Okay, Carl Lamarck, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Robert. Hope to speak to you again soon. Okay, that would be great. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Yes, Carl Lamarck, quantum theorist and uh, man of all kinds of uh, fascinating ideas. And yes, uh, we will hope to follow up on that more in the near future. So uh, we're just about out of time here. And uh, Kyle's just about ready to go with his Things That Are Square. Excellent music for you here on KUCI. I'll be back next week with more fascinating discussion and if you want to give me some feedback on the show you can email me at rglarson at kuci.org you can also catch me on myspace that's myspace.com slash out the rabbit hole remember the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the kuci staff or management or the uc board of regions this is kuci 88.9 fm and irvine also on the web at kuci.org robert larson saying i'll be talking to you next week